Welcome to another edition of the Hidden Layers Podcast, where we talk about all the exciting ways marketing, data, and deep learning are colliding. Today, we're lucky to have Luis Freitas, the Director of Omnichannel for Moe Hennessy. Luis focuses on data-driven marketing and e-commerce, as well as a host of other digital responsibilities inside the big conglomerate. His deep digital background includes leading digital strategy for Pernod Ricard in the U.S., content strategy at Samsung, and digital marketing at the Full Six Agency in Europe. Welcome to Hidden Layers, Luis. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So why don't we start off by telling us what a director of Omnichannel does at Moet Hennessy. There's so many brands, of course, spirits, champagnes, wines. I personally, my favorite scotch is Ardbeg. So when I was looking over the brands, I didn't realize they were owned by Moet. And uh, I love Ardbeg, love Ardbeg. Also been down all the way to Margaret River in Australia, which is like a random place to be because it's in the mid, it's, it's on the West Coast. Nobody ever goes there. So Cape Mentelli, I've been there. So I, and of course, you know, I drink champagne like anybody else. So very, very familiar with the brand. So what does a director of Omnichannel do? No, great to be here. Great to meet you. Ardbeg is funny. It's one, it's one of the, those brands that has a very, very, very loyal following. Those that start drinking Ardbeg really stick to Ardbeg, which is it's fascinating. And it's, it, we have a very loyal community, a very vocal community with Ardbeg. So sorry, not answering the question. Um, <laughs> so Omnichannel. So I'll be the first one to recognize that a title like Omnichannel sounds like everything and nothing and marketing BS at the same time. So I th- so I, I take a very self-deprecating approach to my own title. But I think at Moet Hennessy, we see Omnichannel as the ability to impact the consumer journey and be present at the right time with consumers, regardless of channel. Now, of course, as you might imagine, when it comes to an alcohol company in the U.S., this becomes uh, complicated because we don't own the last three feet. In fact, there's something called the three-tier system that doesn't allow producers to be sellers. It doesn't allow producers to be distributors. And so omni-channel for us just means bringing a stronger coordination of channels in a world where consumers have started to kind of blur the lines and they expect brands to deliver end-to-end experiences regardless of who is delivering that experience. And so my role is pretty much the articulation of those channels and understand how a brand like, for example, Hennessy or Moet Chandon approach their consumer, contact them, and drive the journey from, I'm not aware of this brand, or I heard of it, or I've drank it once, to now I know everything about this brand and I'm effectively interested because you've hit me in the store, you've hit me in social, you've hit me in TV, or you've hit me on any type of other medium. And my particular focus is a little bit more on the digital and the data side because uh, we've been doing in-store for quite a bit, where we are, where we were not necessarily doing maybe the, the, the job at the level of Moet Hennessy was really connecting the dots with the digital space. So tell me, tell, tell our listeners a little bit more about this three-tier system in the U.S. Does that only apply to spirits? Because I know I can buy wine directly from a mm-hmm. winery. So can you talk a little bit more about that so we really understand? Absolutely. And I hope you have the next hour and a half available because this, <laughs> this is going to go for a while. No, but the, 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 I can give you the summed up version. So uh, the three-tier system is a remnant of the dry law in the U.S. in the, I believe, 1920s or something like that, that basically was put to regulate, well, alcohol consumption, period. What happens with the, with the three-tier system is that it, it establishes that there are, like the name says, three entities that need to collaborate together and each of them has a different responsibility when it comes to the route to consumer and route to purchase for the for, for alcohol. 
we are the producers slash importers, depends on if you are producing in the country or if you are importing like we are. There's the distributor who is responsible for receiving all the product in from the brands and then selling it into the retail. And then the retailer sells it to the consumer. Now, to your point, with wine brands, you probably buy directly from wineries. Wine tends to be the exception in the three-tier system for a couple of different reasons. First of all, because of the winery-led model. It's a model that has existed prior to the three-tier system, so it's always been there. Wineries have always sold direct. And two, it has to do with the alcohol content. So products under a specific ABV can actually sell direct. Uh, because the regulation to them applies in a slightly different way. Think of beer. Beer if beer falls a little bit in the same space. So wine can actually sell direct. But even in there, in, even with wine, there are nuances that each of the states has on what they allow to be direct to consumer versus what needs to come from the, the three-tier system. Jersey is an example in which there's a limit to how much product the consumer can receive from out of state coming from a direct to consumer business versus what they buy in state coming from a regular distribution. Got it. Interesting. Very interesting. All right. So it sounds like you get to be in charge of really thinking about the consumer journey mm -hmm. from, like you said, the beginning of uh, discovery of a brand to sale. How does that, that, I don't feel like that position exists in a lot of brands. Mm -hmm. How how does that effectively work since you have to work across so many uh, channels and probably different agencies and, you know, how do you coordinate all of those things? It's a great question. It's, I think it, a lot of it comes just with, it's a very collaborative role. So it's a role that is not about necessarily owning pieces of the marketing funnel or the brand strategies or anything, but about being able to help them articulate and connect the dots, right? So Hennessy still has, for example, their maison over in France that builds the global brand positioning, personas, et cetera, that operates still the same way. In the market, you'll still have brand managers and brand directors that see how the brand then is applied to the consumer in the local market that has a specific perception on the brand itself. My role is much more about a couple of different things. First of all, how do we guarantee that we are capturing as much data on our consumers in every activation that we do? I think with the cookie-less, the bleak cookie-less future that is coming up and with specific players like Apple putting in place IDFA and the, just the overall narrowing of the, of, of the anonymous space for targeting, we've realized that we really need to know our consumers much better. We need to have direct relationships with them. So I work very closely with the brand teams to guarantee that that happens. And usually when once you start getting data from consumers, the conduit of their journey across the ecosystem of the brands starts becoming a little bit clearer and starts becoming a little bit more part of the day-to-day -day of the brand, right? Because they say, okay, I did this activation for awareness purposes. I captured these consumers. Now, what is the next step from an awareness perspective? Okay, I have to drive consideration or I have to drive direct conversion depending on where this consumer came from. So what I end up doing a lot with the brands is being very focused on delivering consumer decision journeys. It's looking at them, understanding what they need to do, what is the challenge that the brand has. Okay, this brand is an awareness challenge in a highly competitive category, or this brand is a consideration challenge, high awareness, but the wrong type of awareness that might make people not pick up the product in shelf. So then what I do is I work with the brands according to their challenges to identify, okay, what are the channels that drive awareness? What are the channels that drive consideration? What are the channels that drive conversion? And what is the journey that you expect the consumer to do? And what, are the type, what is the type of content and the right data trail to put in place to guarantee that we are seeing the consumer go through that journey? 
all of it while understanding, of course, that there is no such thing as linearity in the consumer journey nowadays. It's all about just setting the right nets in the right places that allow the consumer to then funnel very quickly through where they want to funnel through. But the role of what I try to do from a, from a consumer decision journey perspective is guarantee that wherever the consumer lands according to their need state, they get to their objective in the least amount of clicks or actions possible. So if you don't have a direct sales relationship generally with a consumer, but you want to have a direct relationship with them, first of all, tell us how, how many of the brands do that. Let's talk about that first. Okay. Yeah, it's, that's the billion dollar that's the billion dollar question I feel for a category like ours. I think it comes to, with a couple of different things. First of all, it has to do with how the category behaves in the sense of how what is the power of the brand in the decision making of consumers in the last week. We know that our in our category specifically, a lot of what happens in the last three feet, if not 90% of what happens in the last three feet, is right, it's driven by emotion. It's driven by the relationship that the consumer has with a certain brand and and the reason they're going to pick it up is more driven by that emotion than necessarily the price point or the discount of the promotion in place that helps seal the deal. But with our category, people are very passionate about their Boca Pico. They're very passionate about their more efficient role. They're very passionate about their hard bag or their Glen Morangi. So what, what, what we try to do with our data is, first of all, identify the people that are really interested in the brand and then achieve one of two things either high efficacy in our communications and our strategies or high efficiency. Efficacy comes with knowing the consumer and knowing what is the right moment to trigger a potential drive to sale that then we try to track with several different mechanisms, be it partnerships with some retailers that are legally allowed to tell us X amount of people that you drove there purchased or through other tools, promo codes or ways that you can use to really try and identify which consumers purchase, right? And that drives efficacy of communication. Efficiency of communication comes, again, of this cookie-less world that we're about to get into. By building these consumer profiles, we can make our media more efficient. We can make our communications more efficient. We can not necessarily spend less, but spend better. So we believe that driving an omni-channel vision for an organization is not just about understanding the right moment to drive a consumer to drive tangible value to the organization, but it comes also on the value of the consumer data on driving the cost of reaching new consumers down. Yeah, it's funny because I've, you know, this is an age-old problem with a lot of different verticals, such as, well, now it's, now it's being solved a lot differently with things like HBO Max and, mm -hmm. and these cable companies that used to only, used to never own the consumer, you know, the, yep. the cable, the cable companies own the consumer, but the networks themselves like HBO and Showtime didn't have direct access to them. So 20 years ago, when I was at Digitas, we started building these communities where you would have content communities around Sopranos and newsletters and extra content so that we could we could speak directly to them so that as they moved and they they would rebuy HBO, they would rebuy Showtime with their new with their new cable company and things like that. So it's it's funny to 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 hear about 20 years later, we're still sort of trying the same things. Does does Moe Hennessy try to build communities around these brands so that they can do the same thing and have, I don't know, you know, special experiences and value add content, things like that? Absolutely. And I will say that is 90% of my FTE slash job. It, it, I, again, omni-channel, consumer decision journeys, but the biggest portion of my job is actually CRM. 
Mm-hmm. It's that it's exactly building those communities, identifying those people that are raising their hand because they love Don Perignon, because they love Hennessy. How do we communicate with them? How do we talk with them? How do we nurture them? And then how do we model them to be able to do something with similar like-minded people in the market? But beyond that, nurturing this, these communities to a point that you learn enough to understand how can you bypass certain players to have that direct relationship with them. Now, I think what happens, of course, with a streaming service and HBO Max, et cetera, is that uh, eventually they were able, because of digital platforms, to create their own platforms. And because the content was already theirs, it was just a matter of pulling it from one side, putting it in the other, and creating extra added value. I think with us, what we're, what we're still trying to figure out and understand is what is the added value that a consumer wants to get out of a direct relationship with a brand like, like the ones we currently own, right? Because it's very different, as you might imagine, the relationship that you have with the champagne brand versus the relationship you have with Netflix, right? Very, very different levels of engagement, very different levels of expectation of frequency of contact and presence, etc. So we're also trying to understand what's the role that we need to play without being overbearing or trying to be too present when we understand what is the role that we play in consumers' lives, which is we are rarely, our products are rarely the destination of a consumer as much as they are part of a bigger occasion that the consumer is celebrating and enjoying. And so how are you deciding and experimenting on those things? Are you using machine learning? Are you just using your gut? Are you, you know, how are you figuring out how often and how and what messages to, to send using the CRM data that you're that you're gathering? I mean, we use several different tactics, some of them more interesting and more sophisticated than others. I'm a big fan of, of gut feeling to a certain extent and, and instinct. I, and common sense specifically. I, an expression that I love and anybody that knows me knows that I use a lot is common sense is so rare nowadays that it should be considered a superpower because I, I truly believe that a lot of the times I believe in the empirical method, which is you start from an hypothesis of what you believe based on the experience of very senior people in specific jobs and specific positions. And then you try to test these hypotheses using machine learning, using stimulus, trigger, segmentation, et cetera. So I think it's a little bit of art and science for us between what we know about the category, what data we have available, which by the way, as you know, alcohol data tends to be one of the most difficult data to get in the sense of the third party third party marketplace. It's actually not a type of data that you can get. It falls in the same category as pharmaceuticals. It falls in the same category as gambling. So any data that you try to get, you start from scratch with the consumers. So it's a mix of what do we know is the consumer behavior in store? What is what we know about consumer behavior in the on-premise, in bars, in restaurants, et cetera? And then what can we test with our audiences in a, in a very sensitive way to understand what makes them react and really what drives the business with them. And it starts with the hypothesis, but then it's validated by the All right. So more importantly, how do I get all the special releases for Ardbeg? (laughs) <laughs> well, one, you need to join the Ardbeck community if you oh, haven't joined it already. I know. I'm just, you know, it's not something I really, uh, you know, let's speak to that for a minute because I am pretty loyal to Ardbeck, right? I'm a consumer. I discovered it. I don't, I don't remember years ago. I like smoky PD uh, yeah. scotch. I've tried a number of them. Ardbeck is by far the best one in my opinion. And, and I like the Oogadol and and things like that, but the ten's fine. But anyway, I'm I'm I'll when I don't have a bottle at home, I will go and find a bottle. Whether it's online, whether it's at the local store or in New York, I, I'd use I go to Aster because they have they have a lot mm-hmm. of it. But I never even think to join the online community. 
Yeah. You know, what, what, where is that challenge in your, in your consumer journey? And, and, and am I, am I normal that way? Yeah, yeah. Well, good news is you are normal. The bad news <laughs> is you are normal because ultimately that, that becomes a problem for us. I think, again, I think it just has to do with the relationship that consumers have with these brands and what the expectation was. Previously, these brands did not have direct relationships with their consumers, right? Because A, three-tier system, B, technology. With the rise of digital, now every brand has a direct relationship with their consumer, but they need to establish what is the value exchange of that relationship and what the consumers should expect and how the consumer can change behaviors based off of that. So a lot of our effort is really about recruiting people into our CRM databases and learning more about them and explaining to them the value of belonging to these databases and having that direct relationship. So for example, if I turn to you, right, you're an ArtBeck fan already, and I tell you, well, if you join the ArtBeck committee, you will actually have a say on the next uh, limited edition that we launch. You'll actually have uh, access to pre-products that you get to taste and you tell us if you like the smokiness or you don't like it, and you'll be able to influence the next product release that we do. Perfect. Probably then you will say, oh, why am I not in this anymore? <laughs> like, why, why have All I right. never heard of this? All right, so how do you get that message out, though? I mean, are you... Are, are these brands digitally advertising these communities? I mean, I would think that that would be some a good way to to try to message me. Or do you do in store in store messaging about that? Or, or or how does that how do how do you how do you get that message out? I think it's been it's been an evolving story to be super candid and transparent. I think first of all, alcohol was. And I can say this openly, I've worked in alcohol for almost 10 years now. It's been a laggard in, in the digital business mm. period. And I think that just had to do with the fact that the alcohol hadn't been disrupted by digital yet. I used to say pre-COVID that until alcohol is downloadable, we will not see true disruption <laughs> in the category, right? COVID proved me wrong completely. I, did, I never expected the pandemic scenario because now what's happening is that consumers are buying online. We see the... You see digital platforms like Drizzly getting triple-digit growth over the entire period of a year. People just shifted their behavior because, like you said, you like Ardbeg. So if you want to want to if you want to find Ardbeg, you're going to look for it. And so you went online and you found it on the, your favorite store. You found it on Astro. You order it online and you're done. So I think what's happening in, in companies like Hennessy is that there's been a transformation of how we are looking at retail and how we're looking at consumer discovery of our products. Previously, we would probably do uh, a POS material in a store with a big logo of art bag, a big bottle of art bag, and saying, this is where you can find it because this is where 90% of our consumers are buying. Mm -hmm. Now what's starting to happen is we're starting to say, here's art bag. By the way, join the art bag committee because you'll be able to get access to limited editions and to many things that previously you didn't have access to. And the reason we're doing that is because the, the majority of consumers is no longer just going to stores. They're starting to buy online. And so if you want to master that journey online, it starts by trying to own part of that relationship and having that direct relationship. And so what's happening is that the brands have started to shift more funds towards consumer acquisition versus brand awareness, realizing that one in the, that both work together hand in hand. But it has been an upskilling and it has been something that in particular, the, our MHCL Seth Kaufman has been super, super, super protective, uh, protective and, and um, aggressive towards. He loves everything that digital delivers. And he was the first one when he arrived relatively recently, a year ago at Moet Hennessy and said, we need to become more consumer obsessed. We need to drive consumer journeys better. We need to acquire consumers and we need to give them digital experiences that match the level of luxury that Moet Hennessy is. And so... I gave you a really roundabout answer. The short answer would be, we are advertising more 
to do consumer acquisition. We are advertising more on the benefits of engaging directly with the brand versus only having a transactional relationship with the brand. And we are starting to drive more value with these direct consumers who see and say, and they tell us, I love being in this database because I'm getting stuff out of this brand that I never imagined I could have. So, all right. So that's, that's Moe Hennessy, you know, and you spent a number of years, I think over seven years at Pernod Ricard. So is there a difference in their approaches or, or is this really, uh, this is the same challenge at all at, at, at these spirit and alcohol companies? I would say the challenge is relatively similar because it's more of a category challenge because it has to do with A, legality, B, three-tier system, C, consumer relationship with the category, right? Consumer relationship with the category started mostly at bars, didn't start online, Right. Relationship with stuff like Netflix and, and if you think about streaming services, most of the time starts online because that's where it started, right? And, and, that's, and it's content that is consumed there. Alcohol is not consumed online, right? That liquor is not downloadable yet. So I would say that the challenge across any alcohol brand is relatively similar because the, the constraints are relatively the same. I think it all comes down to mindset and it all, it all comes down to understanding where the winds are, are shifting. And I would say that Pernod did a fantastic job for many years of trying to get to that position of understanding digital and gaining more share and more and more affinity in, in the digital space. But what happens with a company like Moet Hennessy that gives it a slight advantage, to be very honest, is the fact that Moet Hennessy has what we call lighthouse brands, right? And the lighthouse brands are those brands that help you find in the store where the category is. So we know that people look for the bottle of Moet or the mm -hmm. bottle of Rupclico in store to know where the champagne area is. People mm -hmm. look for the bottle of Artbeck or the bottle of Glenmorangie to know where the whiskey section is. If we take this and we apply this to the online space, the same principle applies. You kind of borrow the same brand equity and you bring it into just a different space. And because of that, Moet Hennessy has step changed quite a few of their tactics over the last couple of years to take advantage of that leadership position offline in the online space, which, as you might imagine, has implications on search budget, has implications on digital shelf, has implications on e-retail-focused budgets, et cetera, et cetera. So same constraints for both organizations. I think what really changes is more of the brand equity and the power that it carries on to offline, off to online. Got it, got it. All right. So one of the things I was wondering about, in all, you see, you get to be exposed to a lot of different strategies, tactics a lot of different technologies across all of these, you know, trying to figure out and solve these problems for each of these brands. Is there any kind of technology or solution that you found for any, any of these challenges that you just thought was the future? This is, this is where we're going. Was it machine learning? Was it just a novel way of, of, of solving a CRM or a digital marketing problem? I think there's a couple of technologies that I'm particularly very interested in, and I want to see what's what's going to happen. I think we're in an interesting point with digital overall, which is, and, and this is a very personal opinion, might be completely wrong, but I feel that digital is in a place where we are no longer necessarily developing new things as much as we're making the previous things work better. Right. If we look at the resurgence of QR codes in the U.S., where in countries like Brazil or China or Korea were already completely adopted. If we look at the migration of Wi-Fi to more energy efficient Wi-Fi or the resurgence of Bluetooth in the last couple of years. What I think is that there's a lot of technology that was in the door and that nobody was leveraging and that I think we're all recovering and saying, actually, now there's a use case for it. 
Machine learning is, of course, one of my fascinations. AI is one of my fascinations. I think in most of the cases, we're not there yet, just in the sense of the intelligence that it's able to give you back. I think what I'm most interested in from a technology perspective right now is any type of dynamic creative creative optimization based off data points and consumer data points. And there's several players in the market that I think do this very well, be it ECOs with paid media, be it companies like Movable Inc. with with dynamic email optimization and, and, and the ability to change a creative based on the time of the day that you're opening it, et cetera. So, and the reason why I'm obsessed about this is because I, I truly believe that our category is very much driven by context. There's a very big difference of a consumer that opens an email about Hennessy, let's say 11 a.m. on a Tuesday versus a consumer that is exposed to a Hennessy ad at 11 p.m. on a Friday. It's very much about context and it's about our ability to do to the right context, give the right content and the right trigger that makes the consumer consider you. So if you're so companies like Movable Inc., which I'm giving them free advertising, but they kind of deserve it, is they, they have the ability, for example, on your emails to, okay, if you're opening it at this time, the creative changes to during the day, you can give them a brunch recipe, you can give them a mimosa recipe. If it changes tonight, you can give them a cocktail recipe, you can give them more high energy vibes, etc. So right now, it might sound very basic, but this dynamic creative optimization and thinking about it and having the right data points to trigger them are really some of the things that make me very passionate in technology. Other than that, I'm curious to see where AI is going. I'm curious to see how, for example, Salesforce with Einstein, IBM with Watson, and all the different other technologies are coming around can deliver against our business goals. Still don't think we're there. I still think there. I still think there's a level of dumb in, in AI, which I think it's a little, it's a little contradictory, but, 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 but I'm very much looking forward to see what the space does in the next couple of years. Yeah, when, in talking about your dynamic creative optimization challenges and, and the context and, and the message at the time, you know, that was, you know, when I started at Digitas, again, over 20 years ago, our mantra was digital allows us to deliver the right message to the right person in the right time in the right place. Yep. And that was 20, that was over 20 years ago, 21 years ago. And, and that was ultimately one of the reasons why I and my partners started Cognitive also as a deep learning marketing company, because we finally felt like because of all the data that was available and all of this sort of infinite experimentation that was available if you had machine learning, that deep learning itself was the only thing that was really able to figure out how to answer that optimization problem effectively, because... Yeah. You know, if you look right now, you, you spoke about just one piece of it, you know, dynamic creative optimization, context and time. But, you know, that means that you've already decided to show an ad. You know, where yeah. are you going to show that ad? Who are you going to show it to? Answering all those questions at once is is has been broken up in the ad tech field for its entire its entire history. You know, you Absolutely. have one company doing creative and one company doing targeting and one company doing audience, you know. And all of them usually blindly not seeing what the other is doing. And exactly. then at the end, let's pray that it all works. <laughs> exactly. So that's that's where we, you know, we solved the opportunity. And, and I think that, you know, we're going to, we're seeing a lot more of that adoption with, with other folks in the industry. So I think, you know, we're getting there. We're getting there pretty quickly. But, but you know what I feel, if, if I can add something, because this, I, love, I, I love this topic and I, I, I could not agree with you more. I think that there's also, I think there are two 
core challenges there for me to get to a place where I think deep learning really will deliver what we need it to deliver. One of them is that I do think companies have to start, and bear in mind, love my agency partners. I work with several, and they're always central to my ecosystem. But the only way companies are going to be able to address the fragmentation of that development is in-housing at least the strategy yep. and, the, and some of the capabilities. And, I and, think and data and data and data which is going to be my second point in-house yeah exactly that was going to be my second point you read my mind it was on one side having the right skill set in-house to have somebody who can coordinate those three entities with expertise so that they understand how they're bringing the full story together but to your point the data as well think about the fact that the majority of the organizations that have first-party data acquired it through sweepstakes right that is the most common method of acquiring data now would you say that sweepstakes audiences are your brand's core audience? Right. Probably not. More than 50% of sweepstakes audiences tend to be price seekers. They literally, mm-hmm. there's a category for them in, in Facebook and in, right. in, in Google. So a lot of the times if you're modeling data out of that audience in specific without scrutinizing it, without cleaning it, et cetera, and you end up talking to the wrong people or you end up becoming extremely tactical and promotional. So for me, it's one, having the in-house knowledge, but to your point, it's having the right data. And that's where I'm still not completely convinced on some aspects of AI, on the way that it qualifies and identifies the right patterns in data on consumers without being able to extract real loyalists from opportunistic consumers, which we love them still. They're still consumers, but very different treatment. Yeah, it's, it's one thing that we work with our clients on all the time in that marketers by contract say they own the data in that they own the data in this vendor and they own the data in that vendor and they own the data and the vendor can't use that data for anything else. Great. But actually you don't have actual possession of that data. You can't merge all those vendors data together. So it's, uh, it's, it's effectively not very useful for you. So we really try to talk to our clients about being able to in-house tech really actually, and, and to the, to the letter of the word in-house that data so that you can, apply the right deep learning to it because you need to have the comprehensive view at a log level almost. Uh, I think that's really the right advice. Work. Yeah. That is the right oh, advice. Good. All right. <laughs> In my opinion, that's the right advice. So I'm, I'm it's, happy it's, to hear it. <laughs> it's great. It's always great to hear somebody who, who is thinking that forward. You know, I think even on, even on the cookie future, you know, I think we're finding not as many marketers are paying attention to it as, as we would like. I think the agencies need to do a better job of education, educating and leading the marketers in this problem because uh, the marketers love attribution and love this one-to-one marketing that they've been able to do, but they don't seem to understand that that's going to go away if, if an alternative isn't, isn't adopted by them, you know? Yeah. I was banging pots at MH about a year and a half ago <laughs> on this topic saying, guys, we do it now or we're going to be in trouble. Well, we're all going to be in trouble. So let's yeah. start. And again, I, I'm lucky that the leadership at MH, again, sounds, sounds like I'm pandering to them, but I, I genuinely believe in the power of what they're doing. They said very early on, this actually is important and we need to own this data and we need to start getting it now. So at MH, we actually have some of it. We, That's great. we have data acquisition objectives across all the brands, et cetera, et cetera. Very much driven by the brands, but very much driven by the leadership. So we're out of time. So one last question. 2020 was a different year 
it's <laughs> an understatement. 2021 actually seems like it'll probably be a little bit like 2020, but what happens, do you think, after things settle back down, the pandemic is hopefully in our rearview mirror, maybe late 2021 and all of 2022. Do you think that things will change back? Or do you think that the way that you have adapted and the way that MAH has adapted will continue forward past this time? Uh, it's, I, I, I think like everybody, I've been thinking about that quite a bit. I feel my personal, very, very, very personal opinion. I don't think things will go back to the way that they were, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I think I, th- I think that the, the world changes, the world evolves with each crisis, be it a war, be it a pandemic, be it economic crisis, the world changes. Businesses close, businesses open. And I know say, said it this way sounds very cool, specifically for people who lost their business. I think this should sound more like a hopeful uh, message than anything else, that the world always, the world and humanity, thank God, always finds a way to recover and always finds a way to readapt. I think certain behaviors of what we're doing right now in the pandemic environment will remain because they're the they're convenient behaviors and they're behaviors that we just didn't have before because we were either too lazy or too comfortable to change. Like, for example, purchasing alcohol online. I was so used to going to my liquor store. Why would I change my behavior? I really believe people will continue buying alcohol online. I don't think that's going to go anywhere. I think what might change is that they're going to might, they might be going buying alcohol online, but wanting to buy from their local liquor store where they already have a relationship and where they want to support the local business because they saw local businesses suffer during the pandemic, but they will still want to buy it online. So what I think is, yes, Business will return to some level of of, of a a type of normalcy. I don't believe it is what we saw pre-COVID. And I think that's a good thing because I think that's how as humans and as a society we've evolved. Well, thank you very much. That does it for another edition of Hidden Layers. My guest has been Luis Freitas from Moy Hennessy. And thank you all for joining us today. Thank you all for listening in. And we hope that you are all safe and happy. Until next time, thank you again.